Sermon number 691, the New Ninevites preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown, Sunday, August 11th, 1974. On Thursday of this week, Andrew Gerhardt completes his service with us as the student assistant responsibility for youth work, and he's been with us a little over a year in the staff capacity, and we hate to see him go, but he is moving on to new frontiers of training as he enters his senior year at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and will be experiencing in training and through ministry new avenues of witness. But Andrew, believe me, is a fellow staff member from all of your fellow staff members in this session and this great congregation. We're very appreciative for your life, your service, your ministry, and for you. It's a great day in the kingdom and in the life of our church, where you know as well, some of you, that on Saturday of this week, Andy will be leaving the ranks, which I've enjoyed for a long time. <laughs> And we'll be married in this sanctuary to Miss Peggy Levitz, who is seated down in the front with her family. Peggy resigned just recently from her job as director of Christian education in a Methodist church in the state of New York. And now these two, both of them having grown up through this church, this church being a great part not only of their life but of their destiny, they will be joined here in the bonds of holy marriage Saturday evening. I don't know what you're going to do, though, Peg and Andy. I was thinking during singing of that hymn, all the time that I've been pastor here, the Gerhards have sat on the pulpit side of the sanctuary and the Levins on the lectern side. You two are going to have to sit in the aisle when you come to visit. But we wish you Godspeed. You became a communicant member of this church, Andy, and you too, Peggy. Someday, we hope in the near future, this is the church which you will find the providence to be ordained in to become a minister of the gospel. We know not where God leads, Andrew, but he leads. Jonah, the third chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he cried, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then tidings reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and 
Saturn ashes. And he made a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them cry mightily to God, yea, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may yet repent and turn from his fierce anger so that we perish not. And the tenth verse, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. I don't know how much time you've spent in the book of Jonah, but Jonah gives to, much, to many Bible readers a fit. Well, it's only four chapters in length, a total of 44 verses. It's frustrating. It concerns us because we don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. And eminent scholars on both sides, they can't even help us how to interpret this ancient book of the Bible. There are those, you know, who have studied this for a long time, and they say it's history, the real history, interpreted as such. They say, oh, no, 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 this is allegory, allegory, and you see, Everything in there has its corresponding part in history, and, it, and it's telling us about Israel before, during, and after the period of captivity. And there's a school, third school of thought, so one that gets my allegiance. This is a parable, an old. Testament parable, the method which Jesus used in the New Testament, you know, in trying to teach us about life and telling us the story about the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. This likewise is an Old Testament parable to teach us the truth, a parable which some Bible scholars think was written during a time of national calamity. There is some consolation, no matter how you interpret the book, and this is up to the leading of God in your own life. You must make your own decision. But no matter how any one of us interprets it, we still get its same, the same lessons from its teachings. The teachings are very similar. If you can get beyond some of the things which are hard for a Western scientific man to comprehend. The lessons are mainly these. One, God loves everybody, no matter where that body lives, no matter what it looks like, no matter what condition it's in. God loves everybody. Secondly, God's will can never be defeated. 
minute. And thirdly, God's will shall be done with us or without us. His will shall be done. Those are the lessons. But so many people don't know that because you see, oh, they worry about these things that we can't fully comprehend. They say, what about the big storm in chapter 1, the big fish in chapter 2, the big plant in chapter 4? And they forget. They forget or do not understand that this particular book written by the Spirit of God through a person was never intended to be a handbook on cold water animals, nor on atmospheric conditions, nor on horticulture. It's the word of God about a specific person, Jonah, and about a specific place, Nineveh. You find this in the third chapter, where a person, Jonah, delivered a message which he really didn't want to give, which he hoped inwardly would never happen. But he gave this message reluctantly because he had been given a second chance by God to a responsive people who didn't want to receive or hear the message that Jonah gave. But they heard. Can you imagine what we would have done to the likes of a Jonah who had come on our streets? <coughs> Nobody, nobody knew where he came from. Nobody really understood how he got there. But there he was. They didn't know what political party he belonged to. They didn't know exactly whether they should be for him or against him, but all they knew was that this stranger in their midst had a message. And the message was, yet forty days, and then never shall be overthrown. And these people who didn't know the man, who didn't know where he came from, believed the message that it was from the Lord. They didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to face it. They would have loved to run away from it. But they believed it. They believed that this was a message from God. And you know what happens? The message was very simple, eight words in length. Yet forty days and none of us shall be overthrown. Forty, you see, is that number that keeps popping up throughout the entire Bible and which is used by the Semitic mind to indicate a period of testing, or better yet, probation. You remember Noah, Noah, and the arky, arky, and the muddy, muddy, and floody, floody, and all that. You remember? Forty days and nightsies at Wednesdays. The period of testing, you see, in probation. Remember poor Moses, forty years wandering through the wilderness. People being prepared, you see, on probation before they entered the promised land, even our own Lord. 
he was baptized. Forty days in the wilderness, he was on probation, wrestling against the power of evil. Forty, the number given when God is offering a second chance. The people had forty days do something about their wickedness and their evilness. Some people find this very hard to believe. They say, God, a God who never changes, a God of love, does he threaten his people? Yes, he does. Sometimes we get so far carried away with his love bit that we forget that God is a God of justice as well as love. And he threatens just like you loving fathers and mothers threaten your children. Not with the hope that you ever have to execute that threat, but the hope that the child will change. And God, who never changes, who is love, threatens his children with the heart, with the hope that men and women and young people will change. He did it in Nineveh, and he still does it today. And the people believe that God was giving them a second chance. They believed that message. And we read that the Chamber of Commerce and all the other social, political, commercial enterprises got concerned. There was a run on sackcloth in the department store. People collected ashes. They sat in them. The jails were empty. The police didn't have anything to do. The people were all in church. There was a revival in Nineveh, a genuine God-sent, people-centered revival. <laughs> from the greatest to the least, from those who felt that they were guilty to those who felt they had no responsibility in that horribleness that had come under their nation. Everybody, though, everybody. Fasted, said their prayers, and believed God was giving them a second chance. Even the king. We don't know that king's name. We don't know if he was guilty or it is. We don't know if it was his sin that caused all the trouble in the nation or whether he was a victim of other people's sin. We don't know if he did it voluntarily or whether or not he was forced. We just don't know. But he stepped down. He divested himself of the robes and the insignia of his office. He put on sackcloth, the sign of mourning, and he sat in ashes which maybe even he himself had made. And it was a sad day in Nineveh. He handed down their proclamation. In his Removing himself from office, he gave a mandate unofficially to his people. 
He said, let everybody pray. Everybody put on sackcloth and ashes. Even, even the animals dress them in the sackcloth. Fast. And the people of that land did two things. Two things. They repented. Now repentance means something more than just feeling sorry. It means something far more than saying, I'm sorry. It means something far more than just getting sick in the gut. It means something more than just arguing as to who's right and who's wrong. Repentance in the Bible means you turn around 180 degrees. It means you go in a new direction. It means you turn and you do something to get rid of evil. And the people, it said, were called upon to turn from the violence which every person potentially holds in his hands. That's the first thing they did. They didn't talk about it and just pray. They did something. Because of the second thing that they had, hope. Hope. It says there, who knows, God may yet repent and turn from his fierce anger so that we perish not. That's the ninth verse. They believed in God, their hope was in God, that he would see their works and that he would forgive them and save them. And then comes the tenth verse, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Praise God. The people had hope. Their hope was in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, and that includes not only Israel and Nineveh, but the United States of America. You've got the point. I'm sure you have it. Because there may, some people may be glad, most of us are pretty sad. As your pastor and friend, I don't think this is the time to be dissecting further, analyzing more, or try beating a dead horse harder. The thing that I'm interested in in my own life, and I hope you will join with me, is that through this period which President Ford calls our national nightmare, we'll do more than just pick up sides. We'll do more than just talk. But for God's sake, we'll try and find what God's trying to tell us at this time in the life of our nation. I don't care who started it, who nurtured it, well, who won? As much as I am concerned about what is God telling us, his people. And 
with the best mind that God has given to me, I really believe from the depths of my heart that God is giving America a second chance. I believe that. I believe that with all that I have, and God is more or less saying the same thing, yet so many days, so many days. Several years ago, do you remember, I concluded a sermon on the 4th of July Sunday with an illustration which for the life of me I wish I could find, but I cannot. If any of you have a copy of it, I would appreciate one back. It came through a trade magazine. In essence was this, that no nation has ever enjoyed prestige, power, and prominence for more than 200 years in the civilization of mankind. Now remember that when you realize that we just one month ago we celebrated our 198th birthday. What's God saying to us? I think he's telling us we have a second chance. And though people have been hurt, all of us are sick. And sometimes we want to talk only about that sickness. Folks, let's talk about the cure, too. And I think the option that is open to us is the same that Nineveh had, the new Ninevites. They do something besides just pray and talk. They repented. They turned from their evil ways. And they turned from the violence that each one of us has in our hands, and they didn't use it. And they hoped. They hoped that God would see them. But you see, our tenth verse isn't written yet. God saw the new Ninevites of old. I'm hoping he's going to see us. If we're willing to do something, repent and hope. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm rather encouraged. As you know, I just returned from a national conference up at New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, Westminster College. Some of our young people were with me there for the last 10 days. There were nearly 1,300 of us present. A thousand or more were senior high or college age. I looked at those people, I looked in their eyes. I had the privilege of speaking before a group of them each morning. I think I see hope. I heard hope on their lips. So let me tell you something about hope. It's like faith. It's like love. It's like hate. It's like fear. It's like courage. You're not taught it as much as you catch it. And they sang a song up there that I've asked some of these people to come and sing, and they've obliged, they're rather frightened to do so, to pass it on. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. My hope is that here this morning, with these people who caught a spark of hope through God in Jesus Christ, they can give us the spark here. So that the courage, the faith, the love, and the hope which we need as Americans can begin right here this morning. Good. Good.
President of our United States, President Ford placed his hand upon God's holy word. The page was Proverbs, the fifth chapter, the fifth and sixth verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. God bless America. It's a great day in the kingdom. Father, we're very grateful for every opportunity, privilege, opportunity we have. And thank you, Father, that even in the darkness of the night, we may see a spark of light that can start a fire going and we can pass it on. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.